I'm Joel Parker, and this is How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 23rd, 2023. Coming up, part two of our James Webb Space Telescope Anniversary Show. We look at some more of the projects that scientists have proposed for observations with JWST. December 25, 2021, NASA's James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, was launched on an Ariane 5 launch vehicle from the European Space Agency's Guiana Space Center in Kourou, French Guiana. For the first anniversary of JWST, last month on December 20th, we aired part one of our interviews of scientists and engineers who support JWST and use it to observe things throughout the universe. Today, we talk with three more scientists who are principal investigators, or PIs, of JWST projects and find out what kind of observations and science they proposed for that telescope floating in space. I'm floating in heaven, I'm so Dr. Inka de Potter is a distinguished professor emerita at the University of California, Berkeley. Her project is titled ERS Observations of the Jovian System as a Demonstration of JWST Capabilities for Solar System Science. Let's start with Dr. de Potter giving an overview of her project. Well, we wanted to look at the Jovian system and really see what JWST can do on a really very bright object, Jupiter, next to a million times fainter ring system, the dusty rings around Jupiter, and some small satellites near that ring system. So it's very challenging because Jupiter really is too bright for JWST. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we really had to just do a lot of kind of tweaking use the narrowest band filters in the methane band where Jupiter is relatively dark. Uh, so in that way, we really could get very good observations. The other thing that's tricky is that when you look at Jupiter and you track Jupiter on the sky, there are these little moonlets that move around Jupiter and they move while you're integrating from pixel to pixel to pixel and the data reduction system is such that it very efficiently removes all the moons from the system. Which is not what you want. 
This is not what you want. <laughs> so you really have to just dive into the data reduction uh, of these things and really go back to uncalibrated, kind of almost raw data to uh, dig up the, the little moons so you actually can see them and observe them. So other things that are challenging too is when you look at Jupiter, also Jupiter is rotating. So over time, the cloud features will smear out. And again, you have to just go back and, and uh, really work with the original uncalibrated data. But then you get incredibly uh, detailed images. Uh, you, you probably saw the ones, the one that we released, which has so much detail. I mean, it has detail also within the great red spot. Uh, it shows convective storm systems. Uh, it even shows gravity waves. It's just really uh, phenomenal. And, and at the same time, you see that really bright planet. You see the very faint rings. And you see these tiny moonlets. And in the background, and that really blew me away, in the background, you see galaxies. Even though it might seem observing nearby objects in our solar system, such as planets, comets, moons, and asteroids might be easier than observing faint stars and distant galaxies at the edge of the universe. Those stars and galaxies don't seem to move when you take a long exposure or a series of images because those objects are so far away. However, solar system objects can move relatively quickly. Think of how, while driving in a car, a distant mountain doesn't seem to move much but nearby trees along the road zip by. If you try to take a picture of those trees, they will be blurry due to that motion unless you try to track a tree with your camera when you take the picture. Similarly, can JWST do the same thing when looking at nearby objects moving around in our solar system? Well, they can track moving objects. In fact, much faster moving objects than they had originally scheduled or targeted. Uh, so for Jupiter, that's not a problem, but it's just when you track one object and you have others in the field of view that move relative to that one object, that is kind of hard. <laughs> and it's probably surprising to a lot of people to know that objects can be too bright to observe. Usually they think that a telescope can observe just anything it looks at, but you can have problems with something too bright. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, and Jupiter definitely is too bright for, for many, well, certainly broadband filters. You can you can go down and just get to sub-apertures, so to, to tiny sort of uh, fields uh, of view, and then uh, you can do a little more, but then you have to sort of piece together in a mosaic about 30 or so little images of Jupiter and just make sure that they all fit in the right place. <laughs> so, so yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's challenging. And certainly at mid-infrared wavelengths, when you go beyond sort of 12 micron, uh, then many of the objects, uh, well, that we looked at now are too bright. Like Jupiter is too bright. We also looked at Ganymede, which was too bright in many cases, and EO as well. Well, EO, we haven't gotten the data yet, but we expect it to be too bright at the longer wavelengths. So you still have some data to go? Yeah, we still have uh, data from uh, the South Polar region that we are still waiting for. 
And I think they're scheduled kind of this week, so we may get them any any day. And also for EO uh, at the mid-infrared wavelengths. And the one uh, other uh, observation of EO that we are still waiting for is when EO is in Jupiter's shadow. I have one short observation where we see volcanoes kind of glow, uh, but we get a longer observation where we can look uh, more at some of the volcanic gases, in particular sulfur monoxide on EO and look at the spatial distribution of that. So we're still waiting for that. It's very challenging because they have to time this just right. <laughs> just <laughs> because... as it goes into the shadow. So you can see basically this glow that otherwise you wouldn't be able to see in the reflected sunlight. Right, right. Because it will not come out above the reflected sunlight. So you really have to do that when there's no sunlight reflected off EO. And you see this beautiful glow of the volcanic activity happening on that moon. Right, right, right. So you're very eager to get that data, obviously. The Jupiter image that has been released is absolutely beautiful, showing planet and the rings and the moon. So we're yeah. definitely looking forward to that. I really must say that there's a citizen scientist in Modesto, Judy Schmidt, and she is just amazing. She really put that picture together and she really knows what to do. It's really a pleasure working with her on that. I mean, we look sort of at the data and try to tease the science out, but she really knows how to make this into a beautiful image that people really can see and look at and say, well, well, yeah, hey, I mean, look at the great red spot, look at these storm systems. So it's really, really great. The title of Dr. Potter's project uses the acronym ERS, which stands for Early Release Science. So what are ERS projects? So the director set aside time, so-called director's discretionary time, for what they call early release science projects. So they had uh, hoped, and they were successful, <laughs> I must admit, to uh, sort of work together with scientists to look at data as soon as we, they would come out and help kind of debug the system uh, because it is a very complicated instrument and it is difficult to get all the different scientific projects uh, indeed uh, get the right science out and the right kind of data being taken. Uh, so in, in that sense, we all help the Institute to really uh, refine the automated data reduction procedures and we can do the, the science. The other thing too is since the data are public right away, uh, we started out with a team with almost 40 people uh, back in 2017 when we wrote the proposal. And, and of course it has these four topics. It has Jupiter, uh, well, and even within Jupiter, the ionosphere is different from the, the lower atmosphere. And you have the rings uh, with small moonlets and we had EO and Ganymede. So we had a lot of uh, people working on these different projects, wrote a proposal, and then we had to wait, right, five years. And now we are getting the data, but there are so, so many uh, new people in the field, like uh, new graduate students and new postdocs, that our team is just growing because I say from, well, everybody likes to be part of the team, a member of the team, just come on in and, and help uh, reduce and analyze the data. 
So we are now, well, over 80 people right now. So it's a, it's a big, huge team. Did things turn out as good as expected? Yeah, uh, actually even better in a sense, because indeed the dynamic range, but also in particular uh, faint objects, they, I mean, the telescope is just incredible in, in showing the faint objects and spectra, and not just for our projects, but I've seen other projects is just incredible. Spectroscopy is something they really have a good grip on, and you really get incredible spectra so you can tease out what compositions are etc of different objects yeah no i was at this uh, conference the jwst uh, first science conference and the results that people showed are just phenomenal that was dr imka de potter distinguished professor emerita at the university of california berkeley talking about her James Webb Space Telescope project titled ERS Observations of the Jovian System as a Demonstration of JWST Capabilities for Solar System Science. I will send you signals from above From places never seen before talk with Dr. Michael Ressler, a principal scientist at the Jet Propulsion Lab, JPL, in Pasadena, California, and he also is the U.S. project scientist for the Mid-Infrared Instrument, or MIRI, aboard JWST. He is the principal investigator on several JWST projects, with co-investigator team members around the world, including programs to do coronagraphic imaging of exoplanets, look at binary star protostars, dusty disks around other stars, and more. Today, we discuss his project, Star Formation in the Extreme Outer Galaxy. By virtue of being the U.S. project scientist, I was given a little bit of guaranteed time, you know, my own time to observe on JWST, and so I came up with a number of small projects that interested me and um, would allow me to collaborate with other people. So this project on star formation in the extreme outer galaxy, uh, what that means is that we're looking at little clouds of gas and dust that lie on the very fringes of our galaxy. Star formation in general happens in these clouds of gas and dust over time because of the bumps and wiggles of gravity from other stars within the galaxy, they'll begin to collapse and form a new generation of stars. We understand star formation in our own neighborhood reasonably well. We've studied star forming regions that are a few hundred to a few thousand light years away from Earth uh, in pretty good detail. But for reference, our sun is about 30,000 light years from the center of our galaxy. Well, these extreme outer galaxy clouds that we're talking about lie more than 60,000 light years from the center of the galaxy or 30,000 light years from us. The reason that these clusters are interesting is the conditions where this next generation of stars is forming is very different from in our neighborhood. 
in our neighborhood, there's been several generations of stars. And so there's lots of elements heavier than hydrogen and helium. And so these older generations of stars have formed many of the heavier elements. So the new generations are contaminated, if you will, by all those heavier elements. But out in the far fringes, it's not the same. They haven't had all that reprocessing of hydrogen and helium. And so when we look at how clusters of stars form in these clouds, in general, you form one or two really bright, heavy stars that are many times more massive than our sun. You form more stars about the same mass as our sun, and then you form lots of small ones. And so we call that an initial mass function. How many stars of each mass you get from that cloud? Well, we don't know exactly whether that initial mass function is gonna look the same in these clouds in the extreme parts of our galaxy. So it will help us understand star formation generally by looking at how stars form in these different environments. Now, I should give credit where credit is due. Uh, this work was originally done by a graduate student named Natsuko Izumi from Japan. And she gave a talk at Caltech that I heard and I thought, wow, that sounds really great. And uh, it didn't take me long to realize that this would be a really good project for JWST to do because these, these clusters are so far away and they're very much fainter than anything we've done before. So we really get to show off JWST. So shortly after her talk, I invited myself to be a collaborator on her research topic. And that's how this particular JWST program came to be. So this program, it's part of the cycle one programs, but you have not obtained the data yet. Is that correct? Yeah. So um, this particular part of sky, part of the sky, is only visible to JWST twice a year, and the first one of those windows will be in January. So we actually expect one of the two clusters we're observing to be visible in the first half of January, and the other cluster will be visible in the second half of January. So um, we're eagerly looking forward to the data, but there is a very specific window and it opens on January 3rd. Dr. Ressler also talked about the potential lifetime of JWST. ESA gave us a beautiful launch. It was so funny because you know during the development, we were always talking about five years and maybe if we're lucky, it'll go for 10 years. And then, uh, such a good launch and everything went so yeah. well that it's like, well, 25, <laughs> I, uh, almost as long as I've been working on it. So it is great news that we can look forward to data from JWST for perhaps the next two decades or longer. That was Dr. Michael Ressler, principal scientist at JPL, talking about his James Webb Space Telescope project titled Star Formation in the Extreme Outer Galaxy. I've never seen the light so clear. I've never seen the stars so near. Our last guest is Dr. Jacob Jensen, a postdoctoral researcher at Johns Hopkins University and the Space Telescope Science Institute in Baltimore, Maryland. His JWST project is titled Demystifying Sprites with JWST. I asked Dr. Jensen, what are sprites 
And why do they need to be demystified? We wanted to look at events we call transients. So these are astronomical events that usually are associated with stars and they brighten for a bit of time and then start to fade. So they're only observable for some amount of time, maybe months, maybe years. So we call these transients. And we had been doing a survey with the Spitzer Space Telescope for the last about five years of the Spitzer mission, looking for transients in the infrared, things like supernova explosions or two stars that merge into each other and cause an explosion and an outflow. And we found lots of fun things, but there were some events that we dubbed especially red intermediate luminosity transient events. Quite a mouthful, but that's where the acronym SPRITES comes from. And these were so red that we only saw them in the Spitzer bands, in the infrared. We didn't see them in any of the many, many optical or visible light surveys that were running at the same time. So they had no visible emission as far as we could see. They were infrared only. So they were a bit of a mystery because we had very limited information. So we wanted to, now with the capabilities of JWST, we thought we'd have a few events found towards the end of the Spitzer mission that would still be bright enough. So we wanted to get spectroscopy with the MIRI instrument in the mid-infrared, the low-resolution spectrometer, and then also near-spec, which covered the wave bands that we were observing with Spitzer to try to actually learn something about the chemistry of the outflows and the dust emission from these events and actually try to disentangle what these mysterious, previously unknown transients were. Have you received the data and is there anything you want to talk about in a short result? So we had three targets that we plan to observe. And now as of a few days ago, all three have been observed successfully. Uh, the first two were done in September. And so we tried to pick different objects that would give us a diverse sample of the types of things we were seeing. So the first two, one was actually a galactic event in the Milky Way we found later with the NEOWISE surveyor, which is a different infrared survey instrument that we think was the engulfment of a Jupiter or super Jupiter mass planet engulfed by a star. The next target was one of our canonical sprites uh, in the galaxy IC342, uh, where we believed it was probably going to be similar to things we think are the mergers of two stars. Uh, and indeed, we saw some infrared emission of newly formed dust in the outflow of this event that's very similar to what's been seen in some of those types of events before. But it's still a bit of a question why it was so much redder at the beginning. And then our third target is another mysterious object, but we just got the data, so I haven't dug into it yet. But we think it probably comes from a much more massive star and these types of events, people have debated whether it's a supernova, the end of the star's life, or a non-terminal massive explosion that leaves the star intact. And so we're hoping to be able to disentangle that mystery for this object with this data. This project of yours is a target of opportunity, or TOO, which is a special kind of program. Can you just explain what a TOO program is? So a TOO program means when you propose... Uh, you don't actually know the exact targets that you're going to observe. You have an idea of the type of targets and you have good estimations of how many you might have to trigger on or what your criteria are for a target that passes your criteria to trigger. 
So because we were proposing this near the end of the Spitzer mission, we didn't know exactly how all of these transients would evolve. So we wanted to wait until we were actually ready to observe them with JWST to pick the best possible ones. So that was why we did a TOO. You're a postdoc now, right? Yes. Yeah. When did you get your PhD? I got my PhD in 2019. And so that's right around when this survey was finishing up. And then I did another postdoc. And then now I'm at Johns Hopkins and just in time for JWST to finally observe some of these transients we found a few years ago. How does it feel to be an early career scientist getting JWST photons? It's really awesome. I mean, so, I mean, it was something I've been looking forward to, of course, you know, when I was a graduate student and looking ahead, but it certainly feels like something in 20, 30 years that you know, we're going to be able to look back on it and just remember how awesome it was to have these first photons. And of course, very, very grateful to all of the people who for decades have been working to make this happen. That was Dr. Jacob Jensen, a postdoctoral researcher at Johns Hopkins University and the Space Telescope Science Institute, talking about his James Webb Space Telescope project titled Demystifying Sprites with JWST. Thanks to Dr. Jacob Jensen, Dr. Michael Ressler, and Dr. Imka DePatter for joining us on How on Earth to talk a little bit about the science that can be done with the James Webb Space Telescope. all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by yours truly, Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Graham Goldman and Brian May. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KJNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KJNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. <laughs>